detail on that. I want to open up, if you will, to Luke chapter 10. Last week, um, Pastor Chris gave a really cool illustration about this guy on the Titanic, that preacher. What's his name, John Harper? Well, what a story. Um, and this kind of, uh, the word that the Lord has given me is going to kind of tail up into that and just, just really build on that, but not through really my intention. Um, it's my, it was my own uh, study through the Gospel of Luke in the last few weeks that has burdened me to, uh, as God has spoken to me, to uh, exactly what Jesus is, um, how he's presented in Luke as opposed to, in contrast to, the way we see Christ in the Gospel of John, for example, or in Matthew as king to the, Jew, to the Jews, um, as Mar and through Mark as servant to, uh, the, to the Gentile or to the Roman world, and uh, John to, as the Son of God eternal in the heavens, um, to both Jew and Greek, to all the cosmos, all the world. Luke is the only Gentile writer in the New, of the New Testament writers, Greek, and he's a physician and a doctor, and we all think, oh yeah, we, it's easy to see Luke is referring to Jesus always as the Son of Man, and you see a, a more human aspect of Christ. You see his compassion ex exhibited and spoken about many times as he's healing the sick. He had compassion on them, and he looked on them with compassion. He weeps over Jerusalem at one point, wishing and desiring that he could gather them together to God, and they wouldn't come, and he's weeping over them. You see the compassion that is not, by the way, what makes him human. That's what makes him God. Because he has compassion and loves his people and all people as a father, because God is his father, and he dwelled and lived eternally with the Father in the heavenlies, connected to Him by love. It was love that holds the Trinity together, the Father for the Son. I, will that, I would that the whole world would know how much the Father loves me. That's what He said in John chapter 16 and John chapter 17, that prayer. His will and His desire would that be that, he, that, that His disciples would see and know how much the Father loved Him. And that the love that he has for me, I give to you. And that you would then love one another. So when we talk about being all these, there's some humanity in, in Jesus. No, it's his, his birthright. And by the way, Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus through Mary, which is his human parent. Matthew gives the genealogy of Christ through Joseph, which is not his human parent. That he has no human ancestry in Joseph, but it's his legal and royal descent because he has the right to the throne of the King of David through that line, the line of David. You follow Luke and you see Jesus becoming one with all of humanity as a man, 
for sure. But as God, his, his, what motivated him and what pressed him, what I, when I spoke last, um, last month, if you remember, um, it was about um, what compels you, what compels us. Remember that, 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21? For the love of Christ compels us. It's what motivates us. It's what drives us. It's what, and uh, the Greek word that was used there, remember that too, it, it was uh, that it, it's like a person who's in, who's in custody. The police, uh, the, the law enforcement has him in handcuffs and you're going where somebody else is saying you're going. And you're no longer in charge of your destiny, of, what, of your steps. That's what the word is used about the love of Christ. It has arrested me and it is controlling me. What, everything that I do, it, it's the motivation that I live by. This is, and that's, that's what Christ's motivation was when we see Jesus in the Gospel of Luke. That same thing. And when we see his, his call to us, his call, his, it is a, it is a um, in Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 to 30, I'm going to quote that real, real quick for you. Do we have that on the screen, by the way? I'm sorry? <clears throat> That's okay. Um, I thought that was on there. Matthew 28. Anyways, this is where Jesus says, there you go. Come to me, all you who are weary and are burdened or heavy laden, laden down with burdens, and I'll give you rest. And this is an invitation first to come to me and then he's to the, ne the very next sentence, he's in also inviting them to take upon a yoke on yourself. This is the way Christ calls us to action and to service. Does he demand it? Well, I guess yes in a moral sense because love demands the same type of thing in response, reciprocation. But in a, in a legal sense, it's not a demand. It's, a, it's, a, it's an opportunity. Will you do this? I'm asking you, and I'm inviting you, and I'm giving you the privilege to take upon yourself a yoke that is not your own, but is mine on you, and learn from me because I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What a, it almost sounds like an irony. Take my yoke upon you. What is a yoke? It's a burden that goes around your neck that controls you, that makes you go to work and plow the fields, and you will find rest for your souls. And the first thing I see in this yoke, this whole yoke thing, we're, we are uh, fellow laborers with Christ. <coughs> We've seen this in our class in upstairs, 2 Corinthians 6. We are fellow laborers with Christ, yoked together with Him, and so therefore, when you hear God's voice today speak to you, do not harden your hearts because this today, this moment in history and in time and in eternity is the day of salvation. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, after Pentecost, but before He returns in glory and puts an end to the invitation, because guess what? This coupon has an expiration date on it. It's free, but for a limited time only. 
And this time between the first and second coming is called the day of salvation. Now is the day of salvation. It is free and it is given. So don't, when you hear that, don't humble your heart. That was 2 Corinthians chapter 6, the first couple of verses. And Paul describes himself as those who are fellow laborers with Christ. We are giving you this exhortation as those who are yoked together with Christ. About 14 verses later, at the end of that chapter, he, he says, he contrasts that, and he tells the Corinthians, do not be yoked together, therefore, with unbelievers. Because what fellowship, what, what does the unbeliever have in common with the believer? What fellowship is light with darkness? Does God or Christ have anything to do with the spirit of Belial or the devil? They are opposites. Don't yoke yourself together with those who are not from God. So, but who are we to yoke ourselves? Paul said, we are yoked together with Christ. This yoke in, uh, in this time, a yoke uh, in the agricultural sense, you got two ox who are together, and it takes two to pull the load and to plow the ground. And, um, and here's what Christ is doing. You know, he could have done it all himself, but he wants you and he wants me and he calls me and he calls you not just to be delivered and saved from our past, our sins, our wickedness, the things that held us back and that kept us from God, that kept us from relationship with him, that cut us off from him. We're not only brought in, brought near and brought together with him. We're called to work together with him and do his works on the earth. Yoke yourself together with me. Take my yoke upon you. Now, this was a very, uh, for, for Christ to give this invitation was, was in, in, a, in a real sense, humbling because I'm sharing all the, all the, um, the responsibility that the Father has given me, the work that the Father has given to me, and I'm sharing it equally with you alongside of me, side by side, not just me over you, but I'm asking you to take on the Father's will for me, and I have come to do not my own will and not do it in my own way, but to do the Father's will and do it His way. Now will you come and yoke yourself together with me, side by side with me, and work His works And he's saying, I will, and in, in a sense, he's putting himself right alongside of each one of his disciples as equals in the sense of the work of the kingdom of God. Yoke yourself. That is, that is a privilege to be as he would. What work will you do with that? Be yoked together. And you, for I am gentle and humble in heart. This is not about... Um, Serving the kingdom of God is going to be the antithesis of the way that authority works in the world, where it's from the top down. Think of the military. Think of the post office. <laughs> Ever hear the phrase, that guy's gone postal? <laughs> yeah. Because these are, it's just, whenever they had governments involved in, in the prison system, it's the same way. You've you got to know who's, who's ahead of who and who's on top of who. And, uh, because you have to know who, who, who not to cross, uh, to get on the bad side of. 
and there's authority structures. And if, if, you, if, you go, if you do something that is considered something that's against the will of a, of a superior, and there's that word superior, we call them superior. In Christ, there is no superior uh, value. There, is, there, there are levels of responsibility, positions of authority. There are differences in positions of authority, but it's superior. But make the individual themselves as being superior is <coughs> completely blown out <coughs> by Christ. Because this is what he describes himself as, a servant who is gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Because my yoke, my yoke, again, this is a yoke of burden, of responsibility, and it is a burden of labor that I am graciously called to share in <clears throat> is easy and my burden is light. When you're following him and you're doing his will, you're going to find out that it's a lot easier than not doing his will. You're going to think, if you look at the whole task around you, I, you mean I, I've got to save the whole world? You know, the whole world is lost and it's a mess and it's going to hell and it's getting darker every day. What can I do? You know, my yoke is easy. Guess, guess who's bearing the bigger burden, the bigger brunt of the load? The one who went to Calvary on our place and gives us the spirit of freedom, of liberty, not a spirit of fear. It is, and his burden that he has is light. I heard somebody else say it this way. He said, there's only one thing harder than not surrendering to Christ and not doing the will of God. Uh, th then, excuse me, let me back up and try that again. There's only one thing harder than, than, than doing the will of God and submitting to him, and that's not doing the will of God. <clears throat> you do that a few times and you find it would have been better to listen. He's got a better plan, and he knows everything and sees everything. I don't. I need to trust as a child. So Jesus sends us out together to be yoked together with him as laborers. And Now, there's this point in his ministry, and Luke, I think, is the only one who mentions it. Now, all the stuff, these things that happen in these chapters are spoken about in the other synoptic gospels. But Luke is the only one who frames these um, uh, incidents between... Um, Christ commissioning his uh, disciples to go out ahead of him and preach in the towns. In Luke, the beginning of Luke chapter 9, for example, Jesus is commissioning the 12 whom he called apostles. And he's telling them, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll read that in a minute. And then in chapter 10, it begins by, he took a larger group. 70, 72 actually is a, a, um, a more specific number, I think, given by Matthew. Luke just rounds it to about 70, 70 or 72. A larger group of them and sends this larger group out to go ahead of him into every town that he was about to go into and enter. And he gives them a power and authority that are his to go out to. Bear in mind, they didn't have Pentecost yet, so the Holy Spirit wasn't given. Remember that later on that Jesus said, 
uh, wait in Jerusalem, don't go out, don't testify until the, the Holy Spirit's come on you. Then you will be my witnesses to the Lord. So he's sending these guys out without Pentecost, but with an authority that is his, that is borrowed, to go out to preach the gospel of the kingdom, to heal, and to drive out demons. Um, so there's two commissionings, one with the 12 in chapter 9, one with the 70, 72 in chapter 10. And I'm going to read those, these passages with you and pull some uh, key things out here for us today. And you know what? I'm going to probably end up doing this in two parts because there's um, some good stuff here, and I don't want to skimp, and I don't want to rush either. Um, so... Let's read. Um, I want you to go to um, um, Yeah, that's fine. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll look at uh, chapter, chapter nine. Jesus had called the 12 together. He gave them power and he gave them authority to drive out all demons and to cure diseases. And then he sent them out to preach the gospel of God and to heal the sick. Okay, so uh, just, one, just a note there. Um, I want to I take note of, and this will help you if you have your text in front of you and can see the whole thing. Um, he's, he's sending the 12 out He's, they have watched him now up to this point for probably a year or two. And they have seen him going from town to town, healing the sick. It, there wasn't a sickness that he wasn't able to heal, including death itself, raising the dead. They watched him having this power. It was gathering people to come from all over, all over Israel and even outside of Israel's borders to get healed, to have this healing. And in, the, in that same... In that same uh, um, ministry, the, the power and authority over all demons. Um, a lot of sickness is demonic. It's imposed by devil, not all, but, uh, but some. And, uh, and he sends them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. What, what, one thing we got to notice here that their call and their commission is to proclaim the kingdom of God that's among us. Today we call that the gospel. Paul d d described it. He wrote a couple of his books, Romans, Galatians, just to uh, uh, illuminate and to explain the gospel, what it is. In Galatians, he says that there is only one true gospel, and any gospel that you hear being preached, taught, or anything that does not conform to the gospel we've given to you, let that person, that preacher, be condemned eternally. Anybody who comes preaching a different Christ or a different method or means of salvation other than through Christ alone and Him alone and by faith in Him alone, not by works, is preaching a different gospel and is courting eternal damnation. That's what Paul said, Galatians 1, 8, 9. These guys were called and commissioned to preach the kingdom of God and the healing of the sick and the authority over the powers of hell was given to them to back up and to confirm the authority of their message and of the messenger. Remember 2 Corinthians 5, 20, 21, which we mentioned last, uh, I mentioned last month, 
for we are Christ's ambassadors. A word which comes from the word presbytery. We are Christ. I know the Presbyterians will love that. We are Christ's Presbyterians, it literally says, which is a word that means fathers, a word that means from the Father. We represent God the Father. So we're not just like a messenger service, a messenger boy, like a paper boy. I mean, we are that too. We have this message of reconciliation. We have the ministry of reconciliation as Christ's ambassadors, His presbyters. Literally is what it says. <coughs> so therefore, that because God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, so we carry that to all, and we are appealing to all men, be ye reconciled to God. Here it is. It's open, it's free, and it's yours, but you've got to drop what's in your hand in order to receive what God wants to give you. You've got to give up your efforts of trying to do it yourself. You've got, to, you've got to repent towards God. That's a 180-degree turnaround of you doing things your way and your agenda and wanting to come to God asking Him to bless you so you can have a better life doing your thing and your agenda. Complete surrender means giving up all of your mind, your, what occupies your thoughts, your will, and what motivates you to Him, realizing that without God in your life, you're lost and you're helpless, just like those guys that were about to, they were floating in that ocean when the Titanic sunk. They all knew they had just a couple hours left to live, and within a certain, within a few hours, they'd all be passing out from hypothermia, sinking and drowning. You knew that, unless somebody else outside of yourself came up to give you a hand and lift you out. And that's the way the Bible describes our condition and our situation. Same as it was with Noah. There was a flood coming that was going to wipe out all of humanity except for one man and his family. And there was only one way to escape that judgment. And Jesus and Peter describe that, what the flood of Noah, as being a dress rehearsal for what the ends of time is going to be like. There's going to be an end, and all flesh will be destroyed. And yes, this earth that we sit on now and live on now is going to be incinerated. Before, it was with the deluge about three, you don't have 4,000 years ago. But at the end, it, just at the end, after Christ returns, it's going to be with fire. Fire will consume this earth. And the only... Uh, uh, of those who are going to escape that wrath and judgment are those who were in the ark. Christ is that ark. There is only two ways. It's either or. There isn't some middle way. Well, I'll give you time to make yourself a little bit better and to fix yourself up before I come, all right? That's not what the gospel says. The gospel says you and I are lost from... Birth, no, not from birth, from conception. As far as towards God, we are lost and we need to be born a second time, a born of the Spirit, in order to be a child of God. That's, that is, now, that's offensive to you if you're perishing. It's offensive because it says you're not good enough. 
And it calls me to be humble, to cause me to lay myself and my life before a God who, who's willing and able and desiring to give mercy. And the only thing that's going to keep us from coming in and receiving the, full, the fullness of His mercy is our own pride and unwillingness to... to express and manifest openly our need of Him. And you know, all of the, all of the, I just think, I, you just think of the legacy of this church, of Fisherman's Net. The first nine years, we didn't have a Sunday service. I think it was about that. We had a Friday night evangelistic service where Frank Majeski and then others together with him would come and share their message and their story of how messed up and screwed up they were in life and how Jesus gave them not only pardon from sin, but a new mind, a new heart, and a new thinking. I no longer want to do those things I used to do. I want to do the things now that I used to make fun of. How does that happen? That ain't you turning over a new leaf. There's a work of God that comes into a person's life when he invades a person's life, and it's the each, up to each person to decide and choose whether you're going to say yes to that and let him have his way and come in and set up shop in your life and be the one that's going to start calling the shots or not, or is it going to still be you? We saw thousands of people come to Christ in those days, didn't we? But I want to also remind you that for every one, of the, and there were many and many in those times and days, there was probably 10 times as many who came, heard the message, walked out, and weren't changed. And I'd sit and ask myself, did you ever sit and ask me, why does the same message spoken with power and with authority and with the presence of God in there, bring, like it used to be, 10 to 20 people coming forward down that aisle, weeping in tears, repenting before God. And then another 100 or 200 people walk out, and they're not changed at all. How does that happen? Oh, they're not ready yet to hear it. Maybe it's there more than that. They're not ready, but there's a willingness because they haven't come to the place of, to of being totally, totally discontent with their life the way it is. I still can hang on to this and I can still fix it. I can still do better. I'm not that bad. I'm not, you know, when I first came to hear Frank Majeski and I heard him, it, it was over a year before I finally came to the end of myself and found myself broken down in the middle of a field. A year, for a year, I'm like, my, my thinking, I'm, I'm not as bad as Frank was. <laughs> I never did all that stuff he did. But then, and during that year, God started to pull out all the rugs from under my life, and I, and I saw that I was full of hate, I was full of anger, I was full of pride, I was full of lust, I was full of self. And I had no life in me, and religion didn't fill it. And I knew that these guys had something I didn't have. And I remember one Friday night meeting, Shelly Nagel, Shelly's the wife of Neil Silverberg, she saw me in the Friday night meeting. Now, we were 12th grade um, seniors in high school at the time. 
And she, by the way, grew up with my wife, Kathy. They were best friends all the way through grade school. Shelly sees me at the Friday night meeting. She, says, she darts over to me at the end of the meeting to greet me and says, hi. Oh, hi. Uh, I'm like, I didn't know you were saved. You're, you're, you were born again. And um, I don't remember the exact words she used. But she says, oh, I'm so glad to see you're here. Um, did, when did you, come to, when did you uh, accept the Lord? And I'm just, uh, I hadn't yet. So I'm, I'm looking down at my feet and just kind of shuffling my feet. <laughs> and, I, um, and she kind of got the picture. And I, well, um, and, and she pressed me for an answer. And because I felt like um, a caged dog in the corner, I lashed out back at her. And I, and I said just what was in me. I said, so, so, you, make, so you think that makes you better than me? And she stepped back and took about two seconds, and the Lord gave her the perfect response to what I just said to her. And she said, no, but I'm better off. <laughs> and I walked out of there, and I knew that they had something I didn't have, and I was full of darkness, and I was miserable. But I wasn't repentant at that time. And God had to bring me to that because God doesn't make puppets. He, he births in the second birth, in the second, those who want him, those who desire him, those who will respond and say, yes, I'll give, I'm giving my all to you. I'm not just coming here to get something from you because I have a need. I'm ready to surrender all to you. Let's go into this commission. Jesus says, take nothing for the, he's telling this, uh, the, this is uh, chapter 9, telling the 12, take nothing for the road as you go, no staff, no traveling bed, no bread, no money, don't take an extra shirt, whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. If they don't welcome you when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and they traveled from village to village. Here's the commission again, proclaiming the good news and healing everybody. And we've, we've always had healings, and th they were there, but I'll tell you what. You came in, and you heard the message of Jesus Christ, who he is, clearly proclaimed and clearly exalted and made Lord. Healings were there, but they were on the side. The message of the gospel and calling people to believe in Jesus is what the Holy Spirit came to do and to empower us to do. And they did that. Now let's... And, and that we need to keep that in mind. I say that for a reason. Because our purpose and our goal and our function, our commission, the great commission, is to make disciples of all nations. To make disciples, those who know and follow and believe in Christ, God in the flesh. He'll let him come and invade you. He's not just a good teacher. He's more than that. And if you can't get past that, you'll be offended and you'll throw out the whole thing. That Christ is not just a good man. He's God in the flesh. And God sees everything. He knows everything that's in you anyways. You're just, we just fool ourselves when we think that we can patch up or cover up the filth that's in us by good stuff on the outside. And it can work with people some of the time. Flip over to chapter 10. And, a little, and we're going to take a look at um, a little part, some parts of the commission here. 
the authority to cast out demons. After this, after these things, um, by the way, what happened between chapter 9 and chapter 10 was there was a transfiguration. Jesus revealed himself in power and glory to three of his disciples. There was an argument about right after the, imagine that you're coming into, you're seeing Christ in his power and glory, and then in the next paragraph, a handful of them are arguing about who's the greatest in the, in the kingdom of heaven. <clears throat> now, I'm not mocking those guys because I've done the same thing and I've seen us, we do the same thing. Who's, who's the most important and who needs to be in, heard the most? So after that, between the commissioning of the 12 and then there's a transfiguration and there's a discussion about the, uh, who's the greatest. And um, by the way, that in uh, Luke 9, 46, 46, what Jesus said to there about that, that argument about the greatest, that is so important because it's a, it's, it bears a lot of importance and, and weight on what he's about to do, tell them in chapter 10. Uh, and as he's commissioning them to go out. The greatest, he takes a child, and Jesus, knowing their inner thoughts, ver, chapter 9, verse 47, he knows what, he's addressing something that's going on inside them. They didn't even speak it out. They were embarrassed to even have that conversation in front of him. <laughs> like he doesn't know what's already going on. Right? All your thoughts anyway. So inside your thoughts. So he addresses what's going on inside their minds and hearts. And he said, he takes this little child, has him stand up next to him with his arm around this little child. And he tells him, whoever comes, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes him who sent me. And whoever is least among you, this one is great. Who makes himself the least, who makes himself the, the, the least important and wants to do and wants his life to be nothing more and nothing less than a representative and a vehicle and a vessel of who the Father is and what the Father is like to others, that's the one who's the greatest. The one who's the greatest is the one who represents him the best and the most. So it doesn't have much to do with powers and miracles. It has to do with the character and nature of Jesus Christ, which is very clearly expressed in the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, for example. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, self-control. These things that, we, that are the opposite of us, but it's God's character walking out and living through us. And the, and the, and the, um, and the motivation the love of Christ's love that allows you and me to love somebody else who's in the very act of spitting on us, accusing us, making us look bad, and you're, and you're not returning an insult for an insult, but you're returning it kindness. <coughs> that is the power of God at work. <coughs> and that is, that, that is what represents him. So watch, uh, let's go in cha chapter 10, this passage here. Jesus appoints 72 others, sends them out ahead of him in pairs to every town and every place where he himself was about to go. And he told them, the harvest is abundant, the workers are few, therefore pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. There's a harvest. Now go. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag. Travel bag or sandals. Um, 
And don't greet anyone along the road. Don't stop and go to the right or to the left. Don't get, don't get distracted. Whatever house you enter, say peace to this. First say peace to this household. If a person of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it'll return to you. Remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they offer, for the worker is worthy of his wages. Don't move from house to house. When you enter any town, they'll welcome you. Eat the things set before you. Heal the sick who are there. Tell them the kingdom of God has come near you. When you enter that any town and they don't welcome you, go out into its streets and say, we're wiping off even the dust of your town that clings to our feet as a witness against you. Know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you on that day, it'll be more tolerable for Sodom than for that town. They, the, the disciples, the, these 72 went out commissioned by him. They too um, are given some power and authority. Because look what happens. After a time, they come back to Jesus um, and look down in verse 17. The 72 returned with joy and they're saying, Lord, and they're jumping up and down in excitement with the Lord. I can't wait to tell him what just happened in the towns where we went. He wasn't even there. We went there in his name and demons, even demons, are submitting to us as if we have this authority over them. Wow, us. The ones who are full of the garbage that he had to remove from us. All the, the ones who are full of ourselves, our pride and our anger and our lust, and all, all those who are full of all the world, and now the devils, the powers of hell that control this world are under our feet and they, we have authority over them. They got to obey us. And they're rejoicing about that. And, um, and Jesus, he's rejoicing with them, but he gives them a little correction here. And he says to them, yes, when you all went out and began to do the ministry, my ministry in my name out there into the world, I looked and I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. The devil is being stripped of his power because of Jesus' first, what he did in his first coming, the finished work of Christ at the cross. It's who he is. And boy, all he had to do was show up in a town and the ones who were, who were possessed and oppressed by the devil came to him and they were trembling in fear and they'd say, what do you have to do with us, Jesus? Why are you here now? Are you coming to... Cast us into eternal damnation before the time is set. They knew who he was, and they were a, a fearful of what, because they knew that this one who is perfect in pure light and perfect holiness was there standing there face to face with them, and he, they couldn't do anything but cower because they knew that face to him, they are going to go and spend, in, uh, they were going to go in a place of utmost separation from him because darkness cannot dwell where there's light. And he has that authority. When his, and it was because of who Jesus is and because he came on the earth and because of what his finished work was at the cross that that position of sonship is now given to those who follow him and along with that sonship, the authority of the king. 
I saw Satan fall from lightning, fall from heaven like lightning. Look, I have given you the authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing at all will harm you. Doesn't mean that bad people can't hurt, hurt us and do bad things to us. But we have the authority over the powers of the one who might be, who might be inspiring them to do those bad things. And God sometimes allows us to experience hurtful, bad things from others so that we might reach those people who are doing it and love them anyways and reach them. And that's what you see. That was the, that was the experience of Paul and the others, the same thing. But we have uh, here what, what Christ commissioned. He's telling them over all the power of the enemy, nothing will harm you. However, don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. He wants them to have joy, and he's rejoicing with them, but he wants the joy not to be in your position. Authority with God comes by position. The position of the apostle was sonship. If you want to rejoice in anything, rejoice that your names are written in heaven because you're his son, and because you're a son, you have the rights and the full rights of sonship which part of that is a power and authority. Rejoice that. Here's what happens when you rejoice in what you can do or when you rejoice in the, in the things that your position allows you to be able to do. Your focus is on you. And it, it comes to, get, to be strayed and to, to be taken away from the one who gave us the commission and what the goal and what the heart of that commission is, and that is to call the world to be reconciled to God, be reconciled to Him. It's th that love of Christ. I need to lay down self and all that self wants and all of my agenda of self if I want to be fruitful and useful for the kingdom of God and not just find my place in the ministry. There's lots of places you can find in the ministry. And there's a lot of people who are clergy who don't have a lot of fruit. I want to be the one who, that the word of the seed came in there and it took fruit and it bore fruit a hundredfold. More than what was sown. And that's going to take an act of a choice, of a will. Who will you love? There's a few more stories in here that we're going to have to take up the next time I follow up on this message, which are going to cut to the heart and soul of each one of the disciples following him. Who do you want to follow and serve? One of those is the... At one point, Jesus is speaking to um, the disciples, say, who do people say that I am? And Peter speaks, but you're the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the only Son of God. And he says, yes, flesh and blood is not, is not what's revealed this to you, Simon, but only my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And, uh, and then uh, right after that, he says that, and by the way, we're heading on to Jerusalem, and when we get there, the Son of Man is going to be mocked. He's going to be betrayed. 
by one of his, by one of his own disciples. And he's going to be handed over to the Gentiles, arrested, rejected by the elders and the chief priests, and he will be crucified, but then three days later to rise again. So he tells his disciples this right after he, he confirms to them who he is, that he's the Messiah from God, and they understand that, and that it, that it had to be God that gave that to him. He gives them, now, I, now guess what? Here's what's going to happen. The Son of Man is going to be rejected by men, those that he came to save, and the, and the world will take a hand to, to kill him and crucify him. Peter speaks up again, the one who just said, you're the Messiah, okay. And he says, no, Lord, we, that, never should that be. Don't even think that, Lord. We won't let it happen to you. And, and then at that moment, uh, Jesus turns around to Peter and he looks at him and he says, get behind me, Satan, because you're now thinking of the things of men and self-preservation and what men's concerns are and not the concerns of God. What is the Father's will? When he went to the Gethsemane and he prayed, my, not my will, but yours be done. The flesh, the human part of you doesn't like to die, doesn't, want, doesn't like pain. I don't look forward to dying. But there's something greater at stake and at hand, and that is the Father's will. And there's something more that I want to please than myself. There's a purpose and a reason for my life greater than just its own self-preservation greater than just the fact that I am alive. And that is, should be celebrated after all. And what is that? That the life that you have means something greater than just, than just it, it, its own self-existence. And that the God who created you and, and has a purpose for you, first and foremost, it's so that you would have a relationship with Him that you would know him and had all of in an intimate way in every kind of way that he exists and that the knowledge his self knowledge is he wants you to know him there's nothing greater he doesn't want something from you he doesn't need service he would have made 10 billion more angels if he needed more service he made sons, and he made uh, Abraham, and he made uh, David, and he created Moses, and then Jesus himself came to produce sons for the kingdom who would live and act and do the Father's will like him. That's your first and primary purpose. And if you're, if you're following a theology that says God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and give you this, that, and the other, and if you're anything that stops or hinders you from having all of these blessings, run away from. It, it, it's from the devil. Or you don't have enough faith. That's, there's huge. I'm going to tell you, Jesus' words in, in Luke chapter 9, especially when we talk about, to, uh, look at his answer. Look at his answer right here to, to Peter. When, when Peter uh, rejected Jesus' announcement of going to the cross and he says not only Peter is what you're saying from the devil it's counterproductive to God's will it's not God's will it's not God's purpose for me but he goes one step further do you want to follow me Luke 9 23 24 because if you want to follow me not only are you going to have to let me go to the cross 
you're going to have to take up a cross of your own. Deny yourself, follow me. And the cross is an instrument of death. Do you want to be fruitful for something greater than yourself? Follow Jesus. When he says, follow me, he's talking about the ultimate. If anybody wants to follow after me, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life and lays that down because of me and the kingdom, he's going to find it. He's going to save it. For what does it benefit someone if he gains the whole world? Yet he loses or forfeits himself. For whoever is ashamed of me, my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory and that of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I, I tell you, some are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. God is good.